I'm Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute. We're excited to present our new limited series, Epidemic Meets Pandemic, in which we investigate how the nation's opioid epidemic has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the course of this series, we'll hear from a harm reductionist, an addiction medicine physician, a Denver police narcotics sergeant, and two people currently in recovery. Unfortunately, the opioid epidemic and the COVID-19 pandemic are likely not going anywhere soon. The Emergency Medical Minute remains committed to providing education to help combat these health crises. We were fortunate enough to speak with Chris Espinoza, who's now in recovery. He told us the story of his substance use disorder. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. As part of this series, we are so grateful to you for bringing us the perspective of a patient with a substance use disorder and your experience of the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Chris Espinosa, or Christopher is my full name. I uh, actually have been married for 20 years and I have five children. My oldest is 14 and my youngest is two. Recently, my wife passed last July, so what's coming on a year that she she passed away. Actually, the 16th was our wedding anniversary. We would have been married for nine years. So we, we, we've been together for, you know, since we were in high school. And that's kind of how everything started with our relationship. And I want to say we started our uh, addiction probably around a little bit after 2015. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, it, it started with the pills. I had a surgery and, you know, that's kind of, it was a hernia surgery. And I didn't know it at the time that, you know, those things would even have an impact like that. And then when my wife was pregnant with my son, when she was like full term, she had fell on some stairs and landed right on her tailbone. So she had like a lot of back problems. So around 2015 is when it came to, you know, where she just had enough before she was pregnant with her four child. We started getting prescriptions for that. I would use them here and there. And, you know, it kind of snowballed after that. And then push goes to shove after year, a couple of years of pill usage. I think that last year is when we started using the stronger drugs, heroin, where we were just smoking it. So now we've been in recovery since 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been since November of 2018 is when we recovered, when we had our last child. Luckily with the methadone, she came out she did have some slight withdrawing issues but she did not have to worry about getting on methadone herself she's doing great you know she she went to full term she's a healthy baby that being said with my wife she got real sick a few times when she was pregnant the last two pregnancies and she lost a lot of weight so by the time she had our last daughter she actually had lost i want to say about 35 pounds so it, it, it started really actually taking an impact on her, you know. So by the time she had the baby, you could just tell, you know, she was really underweight. She started getting a lot better after, you know, and we started uh, recovering. And, you know, honestly, she started losing weight. She wasn't using any drugs. She didn't have anything. You know, we were on the program together and we really slipped up or anything. But I don't know if it was just she was really tired and, you know, I don't know. She wasn't doing really well. She had started having problems with her teeth and you know her hair and i don't know if it was lack of nutrients but she wasn't eating right i think all this stuff was a key role into probably her passing so in this last year having five children i have one son which you know i think he's having a hard time with it he's doing good you know we're all we're all okay 
that last year in 2018, I started going to school because um, I was staying home more with my wife. And I started an electrician job at the mill at Everes here in town. It's a steel mill. And I was a production worker and I was making really good money. And the amount of time that I was putting into work, it was taking away from the family, needed to take care of the kids, uh, also my wife. So I uh, resigned that position. You know, some of it was, you know, I got laid off and then some of it was other things, you know. But finally, we both considered, well, what if I went to school and, you know, I could stay home, do some study and be around the kids and my wife, take care of all of them. And in the path, you know, uh, get an education. And I've always been in electricity and uh, building stuff. I'm good with my hands. I work on my vehicle. I'm actually uh, renovating my children's room. So we're splitting up an area into three different rooms. So, you know, sheetrock walls. Uh-huh. Um, so I stayed home and uh, helped her with the kids. And little did I know that it's going to be my third year in college that now me staying home and home with the kids, you know, I was going to be a stay-at-home father as well during the school process. So that's one thing that this COVID, you know, it did have a hard time with my last school year. I was taking calculus and three other classes, and it was hard to transition the kids when they're in school, you know. So I have uh, one in eighth grade, one in fifth grade, going to sixth grade, and one that's in fourth grade. So luckily, I was able to get them all to go to Corwin, which is all like the middle school. My wife got them going in there. So at least they were going to one school. Mm -hmm. Um, But when they all had to go home on the computer, I was uh, stuck reading and doing math and all my homework and trying to do classwork. And then I also have my four-year-old and my two-year-old trying to take care of those, the little ones. And also the school-bound kids. One thing I have to hand it is my mom. We live with my mom for the last, you know, several years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, she was here when my wife passed. And she's taken a big responsibility as far as helping out and um, helping me with dinners. And pretty much uh, I'm doing the projects with the walls and stuff like that. And, And my mom, you know, she cooks the food. You know, I help her with the groceries luckily i get food stamps Mm -hmm. uh, to help us out uh, through the month and so uh you know we're sustaining it's been hard but you know i got a big goal and and i got five children that do come first so the thing that you'll learn about me is i was always a husband and a father so now me no longer being a husband i'm a father and that's my biggest role. And I believe that work or school is key. You know, it's what's going to help my kids grow up and uh, take on their own roles as adults. So my priority is my children. And I know when we went in through our paddles, we were having a rough time. But our children is what got us through. So that's, like I said, my biggest thing is my children. Chris shared more with us about how his substance use progressed. I don't know really what it was, if it was the partying or if it was just the motivation of the friends. You know, honestly, I mean, I don't, I'm not really one to drink like I was then, but it almost it almost ended me and my wife's relationship. So I think when I started doing the pills, I was thinking, well, I used to smoke pot like in high school like crazy. 
that's all I used to do because I knew I couldn't drink it. It made me, uh, I came kind of like bipolar. I think that's what the doctor had told me. So, you know, too many drinks, it, it's really not good for my mood. It actually not really good for me. You know, it's my, even my dad said, you know, his, his dad used to be a drinker and he would forget about what would happen or blackout. So I, at that time I seen a counselor realize, you know, drinking is not for me so i stopped that there but at the same time i also quit smoking pot to get the job at the steel mill and i was like well i smoke pot that lasts my system for 30 days if i do this it only lasts three to five days you know if i get a random ua i got a quicker chance of cleaning out so i figured you know maybe it's just on the weekend maybe it's every other week once a month and that's just not how that stuff works not knowing that that whole thing had uh, uh, a dark side. I did, we had no idea. No idea. If we would have been told that maybe if there was a doctor saying, look, look I'm going to give you this prescription, but I'm letting you know right now, this is not a good route. And actually explain to us when they were handing it over. Maybe it may, may have been a different scenario. You know, I don't think when when they hand you these things, they really explain anything to you. Chris explained the impact that medication for opioid use disorder has had on his life, and he described the challenges of being a single dad in recovery during COVID. When I went on my hernia surgery, I, I even called my doctor and I told him I wanted to, I actually got a second bottle. And I didn't know why. I started out, you know, man, I didn't, I didn't even know that it was even a deal until a year later, you know. I didn't know any of that was going on. Until one time we actually were like sicker than a dog and we're like, what the hell is going on? It's been a kick in the pants, I want to say. And, you know, I've been I've been having to hide and fight the the sadness. But, you know, my kids, like I said, that's priority. So I got to I got to keep the face going. I mean, is it always a happy face? No, is it always, you know, but it's always progress. It's always moving forward. You know what I mean? I'm going to school. I'm doing something. I'm trying to do something positive. And that's one thing people got to look at with recovery is you got to have a goal in mind. You know, you got to want to see yourself get away from this stuff. Because if you don't want it, you're not going to do anything. And we really wanted to get away. I mean, I think the methadone went far out of all the stuff. We tried different doctors, prescriptions, going, buying the prescriptions through the street. This is the only thing that helped us, you know. We tried Suboxins. We tried, I think, mostly, you know, Suboxins. We we bought those off the street. We tried through prescriptions. And, you know, we could just not make it through the sobering days, you know, the transition. You know, and then plus my wife being pregnant, they're like, she needs to be tapered onto methadone. She doesn't need to be taken off with the baby. And, you know, and, and that's what works for us, you know. I'm staying up with, if it, honestly, if it wasn't for the treatment that they offer, I, I don't think I would be clean, but it also takes the heart and the hard work behind it. You know, you gotta, you gotta want it. Now in recovery since 2018, Chris reflected on how valuable medication for addiction treatment has been to his life. By the time I got to the stage that I'm at right now, I'm like stage five or I can't remember exactly what the term that they use, but I already was getting a 14 day take homes. And I actually just started getting my take-homes, my 14-day take-homes. And I've had several clean year eight UAs. I mean, you know, so I deserve the responsibility. So when they gave me that, it was it was nice being able to stay home. I always go early in the morning 
you know, they open at 5.30. So you best believe I was there at 5 in the morning waiting in line if I, you know what I mean? In essence, they made the transition easier for me. Now, the only thing that, that I noticed was that they gave other people that same, what do you call it? And it kind of created a bottleneck for the Colorado treatment services. But other than that, it gave me the help I needed. I don't see it as any issue, you know. I think if you're just willing to go the route and little things like that should not bother you. The stuff that we used to have to do just to make our days go through is nothing compared to what I have to do to go to Colorado Treatment Service. If I got to wait in line, oh, let's do it. But it's not like we could have went to a doctor and been like, oh, well, we've been buying Suboxone off the street. Can you give us a prescription? When we when we went for help, there was more red tape to getting help than there was. Like, that's what I'm saying. Colorado Treatment Services said, we'll get you in. Everyone else would say, well, well, we've got a waiting list of uh, six months and maybe we'll think about seeing you. you know, that is just, it's, it's ridiculous trying to get help. I don't know how it is now because, like I said, I've been clean since 2018. But why do you think I won't let go of this place if I'm doing this decent? I'm not going back to there. I, I, if if something happens to Colorado Treatment Services, I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm telling you, I'm not letting go. And if I had to stay clean, I had to do what I got to do, wait in line while I'm holding one leg up and the other one, you know, my knee touching my nose. Okay, well, I'll wait in line with my knee touching my nose. Whatever I got to do just to make sure I take care of my kids. That's how me and my wife were, you know. So it's not going to change. That's how hard it was to find a doctor. After sharing the heartbreaks and challenges he's experienced, Chris went on to offer some encouragement to people wanting to overcome their substance use disorders. One thing I would have to say, though, is I know one thing it has to be when person's ready to do it. They have to make that, that mental choice. I think one of the main things for people to see is you got to have to have an incentive why it's better to live without. But the can't, I can't, is not a real word you gotta you gotta want things and that's with everything in life you can't let anything get in the way you just gotta not let someone tell you no the only person that could tell you no is you next we'll bring you parts of our interview with ashley parsons another person in recovery with a fascinating story like chris and countless others ashley's substance use disorder began with a prescription from a physician ashley explains how the misuse of her opioid pain medications quickly spiraled into a dependence and then an addiction ashley thanks so much for joining us Thank you for having me. Could you just introduce yourself to us and just give us a little information about you? Well, I am a 36-year-old female living in Southern Colorado. Um, I live with my mom, or she lives with me. We live together. She's disabled, so I am her caretaker. Have mm-hmm. been for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. I got into recovery about a year ago after a horrible illness that almost cost me my life. Thankfully, it didn't. But with the support of family and an amazing, amazing doctor, I I give him all the credit. Mm -hmm. I was able to get through a very precarious place health-wise and mentally and emotionally, and here I am now. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I would wind up going down the road that I did. I had as I said, started out on a very low dose. My ex-husband was in the Army, 
Mm-hmm. And we had gotten stationed to Fort Carson, Colorado, out here in Colorado Springs, mm-hmm. from Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And so when I moved out here, of course, you know, that comes with changing doctors and all kinds of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got a, my pain management doctor out here. You know, I've got a couple of chronic issues that I still deal with on a day-to-day basis. And one of them, the only treatment for it when it flares up is emergency surgery. So there was a period there where I had some pretty substantial reconstructive surgeries and things like that. And my pain management doctor literally jumped me from like seven and a half milligrams of hydrocodone to 180 milligrams of oxycodone a day plus uh, 16 milligrams of hydromorphone or Dilaudid a day plus 240 milligrams of OxyContin a day within a two two or three month period. Wow. And this was after a surgery or what was the... Yeah, I had had three surgeries within like a four or six month period. And they, they were pretty serious surgeries. I mean, no surgery is minor, but some are more involved than others. Mm-hmm. And a lot of pain after these surgeries? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. One of them put me in a wheelchair for several weeks in recovery. The other one, it had, I had 105 internal sutures and 182 external sutures. Wow. Yes. But when my doctor was increasing these medications, like I would, you know, call my pain management doctor and say, Doc, I just had surgery. You know, what I'm on is just not cutting it. So he would call me into the office, and this was before the big crackdown. This was back in 2011-2012 time frame. Mm-hmm. And he would call me into his office and, you know, okay, I'm going to raise you up to this and then give you this for breakthrough and yada, yada, yada. And I remember asking him, I mean, consistently, is this going to cause addiction with me? Am, am I going to become addicted to this? Nope. His answer was always the same. Well, you'll build a tolerance, but as long as you truly have pain or chronic pain, your body won't react to it as if using it unnecessarily. Now, if you start abusing your medication, then yes, your body will respond and you'll develop an addiction and then you have a whole world of mess. And that was his answer every time. I was very concerned about being addicted. And two months after my last surgery, I was on these really high doses of medications, and he said, you know, due to, you know, I have rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia and, you know, another condition called hydrodenitis suprachiva. Due to all this and active flare-ups, we're going to go ahead and keep you where you're at as far as dosing goes. And are you sure? Is that okay? It's not going to get me addicted, right? Nope, you're fine. Same answer. Mm-hmm. A couple months after that, I don't remember what had happened. I wasn't abusing my meds, not at this point. I did get to a point where I started abusing my medication. However, at this point, I wasn't, but I had ran short about a week, and I, I had given some to my ex-husband and my dad. They were hurting for whatever reason, but anyway, I would ran short about a week, and I didn't think anything of it because my doctor had always reassured me that as long as you're using it for legitimate pain, you won't become addicted. Hmm. Within 24 hours... I was sicker than I think I have ever been. And even to date, I look back on that and say, I have never been as sick as I was when I was withdrawing. Did you know what it was? Not initially. I thought I had some kind of a stomach bug. And then it kind of 
dawned on me all at once, like, oh my gosh, this is what this is. So I called my doctor's office, you know, thinking, okay, you know, there's something got to do to help me here. And I was pretty much told that, you know, we can phone you in medication to treat the symptoms, you know, to treat the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, the, you know, sweats and things like that. But you have to wait until your actual doctor's appointment to get your prescription for next month's meds. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was astonished, you know, and I remember saying to the receptionist, did you tell doc that I'm having withdrawals here? You know, he told me that this wouldn't happen. Why is this happening? And I never did get an answer. So when I did wind up going back to the doctor like a fool, I went ahead and got right back on the meds, you know, because when I went to the doctor, I was still feeling sick. Now, granted, it had I was like the sixth or seventh day, so I was, you know, at the tail end of it, but I was still feeling so bad, I just wanted to feel better at this point. Yeah. Thus, where the cycle of addiction begins. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and I, you know, instead of saying, why don't we reduce me since I went through this, I went ahead and just got right back to where I was at. And I asked him, I said, I thought you said that this wouldn't happen. He said, no. No, I didn't say that that one. I just said you wouldn't get addicted. He said, you know, I told you you would develop a tolerance. And I said, so this is an addiction, this is a tolerance. And he said, yes. He said, as long as you use it, same answer as always. But like I said, I had experienced that illness, that sickness from going without, and that is where the cycle of addiction begins. Because you get to a point where you're no longer wanting the meds to relieve the pain from your legitimate illnesses. You know, I learned over time that, of course, opiates, long, long-term use of opiates will create pain in and of itself. And then you've got, you know, the pain from withdrawal and you, it all mixes together and you live in constant fear of not having meds or running out of meds. And so you never want to run out and, you you know, you use more to keep from getting sick and then you start running short. And then, I mean, like I said, thus the cycle begins. Ashley explained how her addiction to prescription opioid pills worsened, eventually leading her to smoke and then inject heroin. And this was around the time when I started abusing my meds, where, you know, I would take two at a time, or, you know, I got to the point at one point where I was taking four at a time, four 30 milligram oxycodones, and two weeks, and then I'm out looking for it on the street. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm paying an arm and a leg for it, and this went on for about a year, year and a half or so. And it wasn't hard to find them. I mean, you could find them anywhere. And this was around the time when when the crackdown began. And I literally remember I called up my usual person and said, hey, you know, I need, and it was like, there's no pills around anywhere. I'm going, what? And we looked for three days. And by this point in time, I'm starting to experience acute withdrawal syndrome. And he said, you know, there's, heroin and I refused it you know no 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 absolutely not absolutely not not wanting you know thinking in my head oh god no heroin is so much worse than than pills when in reality it's all the same thing essentially but it's that stigma and when I really got into the thick of withdrawal I said okay how do I get this what do I do what do I do with it I don't want to use a needle and he said no you can smoke it this is how you do it get this and thus 
was the first time I used heroin. And I mean, it was instant relief. Instantly, I hit, hit it two or three times and I felt so much better and it lasted longer and it was a fraction of the cost of pills. And so the stuff is amazing, but I maintained at that time that this is only gonna get me through until I could find some pills, mm-hmm. which eventually I did. And then of course I got my refill date, but I remember saying somebody at one point in time that was in the same boat that I, you know, found myself in more often than not, that they had ran out of their prescription and was looking for pills but couldn't find any. And so the only available resource that was there happened to be heroin, black tar heroin. And I remember telling this person, you know, as I'm putting some on a foil and getting ready to help them smoke it, I remember saying, now be very careful with this because this stuff is a lot stronger than your pills and it will ultimately render your pills useless. Because it got to the point of where I would go to get my prescription only to sell them to go buy more heroin. Uh Uh-huh. After developing a life-threatening infection last year, Ashley was admitted to the ICU. She described what it's like to be a person who uses drugs receiving care in the emergency room. It's an all-too-familiar story and testament to how emergency clinicians need to strive to avoid stigmatizing people who use drugs so we can provide better care. As an addict, when you're facing having to go to a doctor, now, as most addicts don't have a primary care physician, I mean, let's face it. So if we need a doctor, we're at a point where we need to go to an urgent care or an emergency room. And when it comes to that, we do anything and everything we can to avoid it. A, we don't want to be flagged in any system as an addict. You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, yeah, that's kind of a silly reason. But, you know, when you're an addict, it's just one of those things you don't want to happen. But there's a certain way people treat someone when they find out they do drugs, any kind of drug, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, cocaine, methamphetamine, prescription medication, stimulant, you know, marijuana, uh, well, not so much that if it's designer drugs or heroin, but there's certain stigma that comes with Anybody who uses, because I ultimately, when I began using heroin, I started smoking it, but I ultimately went to using an IV user. And so there's a certain thing that happens. I mean, even when I was smoking it, I would say things like, oh, I would never go to a needle. Oh, God, no. You know, and it's, you know, it's ridiculous because, you know, it doesn't matter what the method of delivery is. You're still using it. You're an addict to it regardless. And, of course, you know, oh, no, I would never use a needle. But that whole mentality, when... Going to an emergency room, you know you are going to be treated differently. You know that people are going to look down their nose at you and you are beneath them because you do drugs and, you know, this, that, and you can't be trusted and you're a thief and all these things, which I was not, but, you know, let's face it, stereotypes don't exist because one person did one thing one time. You know, when you go to a place that's supposed to be a safe place, where you're not supposed to be judged no matter what, and you know you're about to walk into a wall of judgment from the ground up, from the administrators, the lab techs, the medical assistants, the nursing staff, the nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, all the way up to the physicians themselves. It takes a very special type of medical professional 
to, A, not just recognize that addiction is truly a disease, truly is a disease, and show the same compassion for that disease that they do for any other disease. And for whatever reason, there's that dividing line there where addiction is just not the same kind of disease that other diseases are. And, it, I mean, it, it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the mental health crisis that this country has faced for years. And, you know, mental health disorder is not the same as a physiological disease. You know, it, it's that type of mentality. And when I went to the emergency room that day, first off, let's acknowledge the fact that I am an IV drug user of heroin. I'm sorry, but when I tell you I'm in pain, I appreciate you trying to help me with two milligrams of Dilaudid, but you have to understand that my tolerance is so high that not only, realistically speaking, do I need my pain treated, but if I'm facing being admitted, I'm going to need my withdrawals treated as well, not just the symptoms. If I had to be admitted in for an extended period, which I later found out I was going to have to, you know... Clonidine isn't going to cut it. Exactly. While Ashley has had many unpleasant, stigmatizing experiences with healthcare clinicians, it was a nurse and a retired ED doc who played a pivotal role in her recovery, reinforcing just how powerful the role of clinicians can be in people's road to recovery. Believe it or not, in time, even before my mom got sick, I was on the precipice of being ready to go to treatment for a while. At one point in time, I went in for a consultation and, you know, they said, okay, did you use this morning? Yep, okay, you had, don't use any more. You cannot use for 24 hours. You come back tomorrow morning and we will start the induction process for Suboxone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll go from there. Okay, great. So I did that 24-hour deal. You know, by the next morning, you're feeling pretty rough. I go to the clinic and wait my turn, and finally, at like 1.30 in the afternoon, they call me back, and I'm thinking, finally, I'm getting to the doctor, I'm going to get induction, but no, they called me back to the office manager so she could inform me that they weren't going to be able to treat me because I didn't have Medicaid, I didn't have insurance, mm. and so I looked at her and I said, I'm literally sitting here in tears begging you for help so I don't have to go back to using dope. And you're sitting here telling me that you're sorry, but you have to go back to soap. And she said, I wish I could do more. And I got up and I walked out. But the Harm Reduction Association, Southern Colorado Harm Reduction Association here in Pueblo, Colorado, those people there are godsends. Dr. Michael Nuremberg, who is a retired ER physician, and Judy Solano, who is a retired RN, are the ones who have started it and run that place. And they do needle exchange, they do acu-detox there, they provide snacks and water. Um, Obviously, they don't allow you to use there or anything like that, but it is a safe place and it is non-judgmental. And that doctor there, Dr. Mike, Dr. Nuremberg, he, I mean, gave me more guidance and advice and would talk to you like a human being, not like a dope untrustworthy scuzzball, mm-hmm. you know, rotted muffin, and you were somebody there. While I was in the hospital, I would call there and, I mean, just in tears, in hysterics, just needing somebody to talk to, and if Judy herself or Dr. Mike himself didn't get on the phone, there was always somebody there, albeit a volunteer or an employee, that would sit on the phone and just let me cry. Mm. And all of them, every 
pretty much every single person, minus, like I said, Judy and Mike, that is there are also in recovery for one thing or another. Mm -hmm. And when they transported me from Denver back to Pueblo, um, back to Parkview, the resident that happened to get assigned to me, he, he graduates his resident program this year and he's actually leaving. He is the example of how to build trust. I mean, trust is a big thing, you know, not only as a patient who's an addict, the doctor has to know that, you know, you can be trusted, that you're not going to go in the bathroom and have your friends sneak shit up to you or whatever, but you have to be able to trust your doctor to take care of you so you're not wanting to do these things. And, you know, he was candid and he was honest and he was open and he was understanding and he was non-judgmental. And he treated my disease of addiction the same way he addressed you know, how's your rheumatoid doing? Yep. How's your hydrocytis doing? How are you feeling? Are you experiencing any withdrawal symptoms? And, you know, he would look right at me and say, you know, I understand that you're on these medications. Pain, yes, you are in pain right now, but, you know, we also have to keep you out of withdrawal so you'll stay here and complete your treatment. And he was understanding and cool about it. Ashley describes how COVID-19 impacted her life and her recovery, and also details her plans for the future, including starting her own nonprofit to help people struggling with substance use disorders of their own. Methadone or buprenorphine, what, what is your um, treatment I'm me- now? I'm methadone. Mm-hmm. I was going to do Suboxone, I'm not going to lie, but when I was actually up in Denver, because I made it clear when I was at UC Health that I do not want to leave the hospital without having a treatment plan in place, because mm-hmm. I did not want to leave the hospital and go back to using. Yeah. A, because of the promise I made to my mom. That was why I told that story, was because that promise meant a lot to me. Because of the promise I made to mom, myself and God that night and you know the fact that reality is this even now with my heart the way it is if I go back to using it will kill me yeah I will die did they start you on methadone in the hospital not in Denver because I mean I wasn't even close to that point yet but the doctor up there said granted suboxone does have some analgesic effects methadone was used as a pain medication long before they discovered the benefits of being used for opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. And so he said, if I can make a suggestion, I would suggest looking into methadone. He said, no, I don't suggest methadone for a lot of patients because I'm very pro-methadone. He said, however, given the fact that you have well-documented and supported debilitating illnesses, methadone not only work in treating your addiction, but it would also serve a purpose in helping in treating your chronic pain, which would also help to prevent you from relapse sure. and going back to your thing. How yeah. has it worked for you for pain? Has oh, that... man, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. My doctor, like I said, he's leaving next Friday. I got him a gift that says, you're not just a doctor, you're a superhero. He and I agreed that before I would leave the hospital, we would paper me down on the short-acting opiates and get me to a one-a-day dosing, either of, if it's pain medication, great, but the ultimate goal was to start me on methadone before I left. Now, because he isn't licensed to prescribe methadone as a form of drug addiction, he was limited to the amount he prescribed before I was discharged, which I was on 40 milligrams once a day when I left there. And the nurse, Judy Solano and Dr. Mike Nuremberg, they're the ones that really were the guiding lights 
to various clinics here in the community that you could go to. And had it not been for them, I probably would have never heard of Colorado Treatment Services. Mm -hmm. And because I only knew of one here in town, and the one that is here in town is a horrible reputation. I had bad experiences with them in the past. I'm not going to get into it or name them, but I only knew of that one. And so, you know, Mike and Judy really opened my eyes. And they open everybody's eyes, and they make this information and these resources available to everybody who walks through those doors. But before I was discharged from the hospital, I contacted Colorado Treatment Services. I became a patient and they'd be willing to vaccinate the new patient packet to the hospital so I could have it ready. You know, I'm being discharged on May 8th and, you know, this is May 8th, 2019 and, or May 7th, and I'd like to come in there May 8th. So I had the packet faxed to me and sure enough, I was just discharge on the 7th and at 5.30 a.m. on May 8th, I was there with my packet. The girl knew who I was because I'd spoken to them and the rest is history. That's great. That's wonderful. In fact, May 8th of this year, I have been there for a year. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yep. And then COVID hits in the middle of this spring and you have many illnesses. Your mother is vulnerable also. She's actually on oxygen. How did this affect your recovery and your life? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When I got out of the hospital and had taken the road to recovery, life changed for me dramatically. You know, when you're an addict, you are always on the go because you're always having to make sure you can stay well. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I never stole from friends or family. I won't lie. I'm manipulative. It's all got out. But, I mean, you won't meet a family member of mine that'll tell you that, no, I didn't know she was using dope because I was very open and honest about it. Mm-hmm. However, you know, you're always on the go. You're always around people. And when I got out of the hospital, you know, the only friends I have were dope users. I mean, I had a few that weren't, obviously. So I've gone out, I think, one time since I've been in recovery, and that was it was actually the gentleman I referred to earlier, the one that I, I call my brother. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do drugs. He knew I did, and obviously he didn't judge me for it. But he and I went out together to a, a, a local club or bar here in town, and I'd gone to the bathroom. And while I was in the bathroom, somebody was in there using. Granted, they were in a stall, but, you know, when you've been there, done that, you know the sounds. And, you know what I'm saying? The way the cat popped off of the needle makes a certain sound. And the squirt of the water into the cooker. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. you, you just know these sounds. And, it's, and uh, I was sitting on, you know, sitting in the restroom, hearing this, I'm going, oh, God. And as soon as I looked, you know, something hit the floor and I looked down and there's the orange cap. I went, oh, man. And this was only, like, a couple months after I had been out of the hospital. And I was scared. It didn't trigger me in the sense that, you know, I broke out in a sweat and, you know, started twitching. I wanted dope. It scared me in the sense that I just didn't want to be around it. Mm -hmm. And so, luckily, it was really close to my apartment and, you know, within a couple blocks. So I just, you know, I came out and said, I love you, brother, but I'm going home because of this. And he said, yes, go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, even since I've been clean, you know, you have uh, dreams, you know. In the beginning, I had dreams that, because Colorado Treatment Services, as soon as you start there, and you go every day, except for Sundays, you get a take-home dose on Saturday for Sunday, and then you go back on Monday. And I had the same dream a couple of times where I didn't make it on Saturday, so I not only did I not get Saturday's dose, but I'm not going to get Sunday's dose, I'm going, oh my God, I'm going to be sick, I'm going to have to use dope again. And I'm freaking out in my dream, thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to go back to using, and I wake up crying because it's so real, and I'm mad at myself because I thought I was using and you know my counselor explained to me at the time I was seeing a a counselor named Joyce who looked at me she said drug dreams can be a very good thing and she 
gave me this packet of information about it, and in it, it said, depending on your reaction, not only of your subconscious in the dream, but how you feel when you wake up, is not an ultimate deciding factor, but it's a good indication. It said, you know, how your recovery is going to go. And if you wake up stressed out and upset and angry that want to use or you used in your dream, that's not a road you're going to go down. You're not as vulnerable for relapse because clearly you don't want to. So it's really reassuring. For sure. For sure. No. Plus, I've got to take care of my mom. And I, I put her, I put my whole family through hell with my addiction. I won't lie. But after her health scare last year, right before my health scare, I will never, never allow her to be put in a situation like that again, especially by my action. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big thing. But this COVID thing, when it hit, I was phase three, which is I only had to go in twice a week. Mm-hmm. And we had just put in the paperwork for phase four, which is once a week. And, you know, you have to be at phase four for 30 days and at the clinic for at least a year when they put you in for phase five, which is where you only have to go once every two weeks. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're gearing up for me to be at this point, you know, we're all celebratory and then pandemic COVID hit. And at first, you know, the, the clinic was doing really well about precautions, but, you know, we hadn't even had a confirmed case in Pueblo yet at this point. But once we got the first case, what the clinic started doing was, depending on where you were as far as phases goes and your UAs and things, how you were doing as far as your treatment plan goes, if you had to go every day or if they, you know, gave you a little bit more take-homes, well... I was given 27 take-homes, so, you know, I only had to come in once a month, and that went on for three months, but since everything's beginning to reopen, they went ahead and put me down for coming in every two weeks, but they've been pretty awesome in acknowledging that not only do I have to be very careful because of how high-risk I am with my current health situation, but my mom living with me and her being high-risk, you know, she's over 60, she's diabetic, she's got COPD, I mean, pretty much when you hear the current the infomercials on TV where it says, you know, you have these risk factors, you know, she's got every single one of those. You know, she's immunocompromised because she too has rheumatoid and immunosuppressors. And, you know, like, so they recognize that I have to be overly cautious with my mom. And there for the couple of months, the only place I would go once a month was a clinic. I mean, I order my groceries to be picked up, and Judy, Judy Solano, the one from Southern Colorado Harm Reduction, she's one of my nearest and dearest confidants and friends. Even today, she's actually been the one to go and pick up our grocery orders for us. We're blessed in the sense that the friends that I have stayed in contact with and I do have have been an amazing support system. Plus, our counselors are available to us by phone anytime we need them. In fact, I I could text my counselor at 8 o'clock at night and say, John, I'm having a meltdown here, and he would call me. And that's one thing that I absolutely love about Colorado Treatment Services is that the counselors there, they're not just there for a paycheck. They genuinely and truly want to see you not just succeed at the goals you set in your treatment plan with them, but they want to see you succeed in recovery and life and do better for yourself and, you know, those around you. And they are so supportive of that. The entire staff is, whether it's a counselor, if it's the nurse practitioner on site or the doctor remotely or the receptionist or the office manager, I the support or the nurses that, you know, give me your medication. I have not met anybody there who wasn't amazingly supportive. So while you've been physically distant from people, you've really felt supported 
Absolutely. In fact, I said to my mom about a month ago, I said, you know, I don't know why we're calling it social distancing. You know, what it should be called is physical distancing, but socially supportive. Yeah. You know, social yeah. togetherness. And my exact words were socially cohesive. You know, yes, important to, to do the physical distance thing, but it's even more important that we maintain connection. Social cohesion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think this is something that the clinic recognizes. And, yeah, and sure. you know, it's absolutely critical to recovery because, I mean, at any stage of recovery, you're always going to have a certain element of vulnerability. You know, there is always that risk. Now, granted, the risk obviously reduces. One thing that I have to my own advantage is when I was in the hospital, I said before I even got out that I want to help others. If I, you know, I want to take what's happened to me, you know, happened to open heart surgery and blind in one eye and this, that, and the other, if, if I can take this and somebody go, oh, my God, and make a difference in even one person's life. So when I got out, one of my big goals, in fact, it was part of my treatment plan, was to launch an outreach program. And literally right before the pandemic hit, I got my official 501c3 and all this stuff for my outreach program, which I don't really do anything as far as like, I don't have my own exchange location or anything like that. But what I've done is I, I started out with only one of these, but now I've got coolers that are placed in strategic areas that are known for a lot of traffic from homeless people or trainians near known homeless camps and in every cooler has a couple of sharps containers there's clean supplies there's alcohol pads mm -hmm. there's a notebook in there with a pen so people can anonymously make a request like hey do you mind getting some extra half inch you know thick needles this go round, or do you mind doing this? Or I had one person say, Hey, will you leave me a couple packs of, you know, single serve Kool Aid? I'm sick of plain water, you know? Oh, yeah. And I, I do the best I can for this. It also has my phone number, you know, if somebody's having some kind of a crisis and, you know, whether they just need somebody to talk to or they want somebody to try to help them find somewhere they can go to start their journey of recovery. I've got, you know, information about all the places here in town to offer recovery and obviously the harm reduction associations and the needle exchange program and health solutions and whatnot. And, you know, it's, it's important to me that I do this. And one of the ultimate goals with my outreach, believe it or not, is to try to educate those who work in the medical field about how important it is to treat addicts a certain way. I actually received the honor to be a side note speaker at the national summit that was being held in Nashville this year for opiates and stimulant abuse. Wow. They do it every year and they're actually going to do it at, in Nashville this year. But because of the pandemic, they turned it into this massive webinar, which obviously, you know, they said you can record something and post it, but I don't have a computer and wasn't able to do that. So, you know, I had to withdraw my name and everything oh, on it. Oh, well, that's too bad. Yeah, it, it was a bummer, but it was a huge, not only is it an honor, but just like, you know, being invited to talk to you, not only is it an honor and, you know, gives you the warm fuzzies, like, yes, absolutely, I want to do this, but, you know, there's a certain responsibility. If you are given a gift of knowledge and experience and information that can help and benefit others, it, it's, it's a responsibility for you to pass that along.
Emergency Medical Minute would like to thank Lisa Rayville, Dr. Steve Young, Sergeant Lex Jorge, Chris Espinoza, and Ashley Parsons for their invaluable contributions to Epidemic Meets Pandemic. We hope you all enjoyed this special presentation of the Emergency Medical Minute.